trick or treat. <laughs> Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Zach Pocklip. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And today we're doing a movie swap of a couple of genre classics. I watched Halloween for the first time, and Amanda, what did you watch? I watched It Happened One Night. It did happen one night, and honestly, both these movies happened. It, well, no, they did. Halloween happened in one night more than it happened in one night, but yes, we'll get we'll to that. Yes, we'll bring it up later. <laughs> yes, but uh, before we get to that, you know, we're signing off from summer. It's autumnal vibes. Uh, so yeah. with that in mind, how are you doing? What have you been watching? I'm doing good. I feel like I had a really successful uh, September movie watch. So that is good. Nice. Um, when this comes out, I will be on my vacation. But I am currently prepping for my big vacation. I'm going to the San Juan Islands in Washington Woo-hoo. and visiting Brenda in Seattle. And I'm just so excited to do some autumn vibes. Um, I have already researched if there is a movie theater on this tiny island I'm going to, and there is. So I'm, I'm going to try to see something while I'm there. I don't really know what's playing. So we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. We'll scope it out. <laughs> I love going to a new place and then just still going to the movies. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of movies I've been watching, like I said, I feel like I had a really good September. I watched a lot of movies, but I also watched a lot of like good movies. Welcome to the Criterion channel. One of their collections right now is um, all of the Stanley Kubrick movies from nineteen the 1950s. So these were his first four goes at filmmaking before Spartacus, which started in the 60s and when he like really started to get recognition and like became what we know as Stanley Kubrick. So I've been watching a lot of like old Kubrick films that are like impossible to find on streaming. So I've been really excited about those. Another movie I watched prepping for Poor Things that's coming out soon is I watched Yorgos Lantimos's movie Dogtooth. It has two of the most disturbing scenes I may have ever seen in a movie of all time. But I really liked this film. I kind of never knew where it was going, which is always like a a fun thing for me. That's what I'm looking for in a movie. Um, But it is definitely like unsettling and extremely Yorgos Lantimos. Um, So I was I was happy to to knock this one off of my list. I feel like it's been there for kind of a long time. Nice. And then a movie that I know you and I are both excited to talk a little bit about together uh, that became like instantly one of my new favorite movies of all time is The Apartment, which is a uh, a black and white film from the, the olden day and a uh, Best Picture winner, considered one of the best movies of all time. And guess what? I agree. Uh, <laughs> I was so swept up and just like, how genuine this movie feels it's so uh like it just pulls at your heartstrings but it's all but it also like brings you right back together the writing is really quippy and really good like i've already watched it two other times so three times this month um (laughs) so i really liked the apartment (laughs) yeah the apartment's great um stone cold classic absolutely in the canon for uh best new year's movies 
mm-hmm. and you should watch or you should rewatch When Harry Met Sally because then the influences are just dripping all over, particularly the, the ending sequence. Man, Shirley MacLaine, what a gal. Zach, how are you? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? I'm pretty good. Also had a good September of movie watching because I've more or less just been home, uh, which was not the case in August. Wow, how exciting. I know, what a concept, just watching movies at home. So I've just been, you know, kind of just bouncing around, watching different stuff. Like I watched Summertime, a 1955 movie directed by David Lean, starring uh, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, It's basically just a movie of Catherine Hepburn walking around Venice and I love it. Shooting videos on her little Super 8 camera. Um, who among us? It's an Italy vlog from Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, I would call her a film girly, but I think that was her only option. <laughs> also, I watched Princess Mononoke, a Studio Ghibli film. Uh, one mm, of Jose mm-hmm. Young's favorite films. I think it might be his favorite film. Um, and absolutely beautiful. I'm trying to get through, um, or not get through, I'm trying to watch... Um, any of those Studio Ghibli films that I have not watched ahead of The Boy and the Heron. And then uh, lastly, I watched Poetic Justice, um, a 1993 film from John Singleton. It's the movie he directed after Boys in the Hood. Um, It's just a romance drama on the road film starring Janet Jackson and Tupac Shakur and Regina King. And it's really great. It's uh, one of the best movies I've seen in a bit. Um, Really sweet, really sentimental, really entertaining um, and funny, and Tupac used to say a line saying, frankly, my dear, I don't give a fuck. An update on a modern classic. Yes, um, and so I appreciated that. It was also good to see him um, kind of play a different flavor than his character in Juice, um, kind of showing that he actually really did have some acting chops. But yeah, so that's what I've been watching, but speaking of a reference to Gone with the Wind, I guess, <laughs> we watched some classics, one of which starring Clark Gable. Uh, Halloween and it happened one night. Why don't you tell people why we decided to pair these movies together? So going back to our very first episode, our introductory episode, we talked about the types of movies we really like. And I really like horror movies and horror to me was kind of never better than in the 70s. And you really like old Hollywood films and rom-coms. So It Happened One Night is the quintessential old Hollywood rom-com, and Halloween is one of the staples of all horror franchises ever. So just a really great opportunity to show each other like one of the top movies in our favorite genres that is not each other's favorite genre. So you're not like a big horror film guy. I'm learning a lot more about old Hollywood and I can handle some romantic comedies, but neither of those are my go-to genres. And so this was like a good chance, I think like a perfect example of why we do this podcast in the first place is to like push each other, but also to be like, look, if you see anything, you got to know. If you like movies, if you talk about movies, if you consider yourself like a cinephile at all, you got to watch this one. So I think that that just about sums it up. Yeah, and just to tack on one more thing, I think it also is a well-timed swap. Um, Obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, this is October, so Halloween, duh. And um, personally, I find fall just as a perfect time to really get into rom-coms. Yes, that's leaning toward like You've Got Mail and When Harry Met Sally, New York in the fall, don't you love it? But also just um, the coziness and the comfort of uh, the rom-com genre fits the, oh my God, we made it through summer feelings that we 
both experience being children of the Southwest. So with that in mind, why don't you pick a side of the coin, we flip it, and we'll start swapping. Heads. It is heads. I think that's four in a row. It could be three in a row. I did not win last time. Well then, I know nothing. (laughs) All right, what what are we talking about first? Oh, what did we mention first? I think we should do it happen one night and then we end on Halloween. All right, sounds good. Okay. Amanda, I never liked the idea of sitting on newspapers. You watch it happen one night. What happens in this film? So Ellen Ellie Andrews, who's played by Claudette Colbert, is a spoiled heiress who runs away to her fiancé slash husband. She keeps... He keeps getting referred to as her husband, but also there's a wedding at the end, so I'm not really sure. Um, he is in New York. She is in Miami, so she's escaping to New York <laughs> <laughs> by boarding Just a Greyhound bus. <laughs> Here she meets uh, Peter Warren, played by Clark Gable. He's a newspaper man who recognizes her as this famous woman who has run away. Um, In exchange for the inside scoop on her whereabouts and to tell this story, he vows to get her to New York safely. If she puts up a fight, he'll turn her into her father, who has like a bounty on her head, basically. She agrees. He is very sweet to her. He's never pushy. He's always like very respecting of her privacy. And I think this kind of like catches her off guard a bit. Um, But it's very nice. They go on a series of adventures, including getting off the bus and not being able to get back on, avoiding these people who are recognizing her, and just hitchhiking, things that she's never done. Days into their travel, Ellen confesses her love to Peter, and he rushes out in the middle of the night to exchange a new scoop, which is that the famous heiress is going to leave her husband, fiance, and in exchange get enough money to marry Ellen himself. She's woken up in the middle of the night, notices that he's gone. So she gives in, assuming that he like left her and calls her dad for help. Then there's a series of miscommunications which occur. And Helen thinks that Peter was only helping her to get the reward money. And Peter thinks that she's changed her mind about being wanting to be with him. So they do this sort of like tussle and the audience is like, no, just someone like speak from the heart and everything will be okay. As she's walking down the aisle, Ellen's dad tells her that she's making a mistake, that she should marry Peter, so she rushes away. A few days later, her fiancé husband contacts the dad and tells him that he'll take the settlement money in exchange for a marriage annulment, dad tells Peter. The movie ends with the owners of a motel wondering why the newlyweds wanted a clothesline and an extra blanket on such a warm night, but we as the audience know that this is a stand-in for the wall of Jericho. So how did I do? Did great. It's a very straightforward movie. So why did you choose this movie for your genre classic? You could have gone with a lot of options. Yeah, and there's there's rom-coms that I enjoy more than It Happened One Night, but I do love this movie. And it is truly the... It's funny calling this a modern rom-com because it's like 90 years old, but it did set the template for like rom-coms for the next 50 years after this. Um, Enemies to Lovers, um, The Meat Cute... Um, All the staples that you see in rom-coms today from the 90s, from um, any period, uh, pretty much stem from It Happened One Night. It also, like you mentioned in our pod last month, uh, this is one of the films to get the quote-unquote big five Oscars. 
putting it in rare air. I'm sure we'll talk about that um, in a little bit as well. But uh, bona fide classic, a classic of classics, and truly like we probably throw around core text a little too much, but really a core text template of uh, romantic comedies. Yes, love it. Also, this movie gave us Bugs Bunny, um, which in turn gave us Space Jam. So what? <laughs> um, so basically, the creators of Looney Tunes based Bugs Bunny off of characters in this movie, like like Clark Gable and uh, the I think it's uh, is it Shapely calls him Doc. They used an amalgamation of like characters from this movie and that inspired like Bugs Bunny basically. And like wow. whatever, because like Clark Gable's eating carrots. Um, that's why Bugs Bunny's eating carrots, which Whoa. then caused everybody to feed their bunnies carrots, even though you should not give bunnies carrots um, to that degree because it's too much sugar for them. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. It doesn't beat your Mr. Feeny thing, but that's as close as I could get. It's wild because I didn't see that anywhere in my research. <laughs> and I have like 14 tabs open with I, this. Literally with this just movie. Google Bugs Bunny. It happened one night. I will. Now I will. There you go. <laughs> so why don't you tell me what your first watch impressions were? What stood out other than the fact that uh, you have just learned about the Looney Tunes? <laughs> so I could definitely tell that this was the oldest movie that we've watched for the podcast. This movie's from 1934. Um, we've watched a lot of different black and white films and like older films and classic Hollywood films, but this is this far surpasses anything else that we had seen. Um just so you can tell, the quality of the film is a little different. It's definitely more like uh, grainy. So that was just like literally a first impression when the movie first started. Um, but something that stood out to me while I was watching it is that Claudette Colbert has like such a perfect old school Hollywood face and vibe just like in general, like everything about her. I feel like her mid-Atlantic accent and her like surprise face expressions are what people think of when they think of old school Hollywood actress. Um, she's got the really thin eyebrows drawn on. Her hair is up all the time. She's just in these like perfectly hourglass outfits. Um, and it just is like so classic. This movie utilized uh, one of her good assets well, which uh, famously she was very proud of her legs, um, which she attributed to growing up in a walk up in New York. And so she had to walk up flights of stairs um, throughout her life, which she believes gave her nice legs, which came in use when they needed to hitchhike in this film. Yeah. Um, so in her career, she won one Oscar, which is for this film, but she was nominated for two others. So she definitely had like a big Hollywood career. And I will talk more about her and her career a little bit later. But um, the other thing that stood out to me when I was watching it is that this was my first Clark Gable movie. Wow. Um, he is known as the King of Hollywood. That's his big nickname. And I get it. There's such a presence with him on screen. He just is really commanding. He, not in the humor or like his affectation, but he reminds me of Jimmy Stewart, where like when he's on screen, you're just like, I want to watch whatever that guy is doing. Like he is like fun and romantic and sexy and like cool and I feel like he will get me to where I need to be safely and we're gonna have fun along the way. So that was a a, a thing a uh, a connection I made while I was watching it. That's Jimmy Stewart has like a much more goofy quality to him than Clark Gable. Clark Gable is definitely more stoic, but. 
just something that I had thought about. That's awesome. I uh, also think Clark Gable is one of the best uh, mustache wearers of all time. Yes. Um, if you look at him up, like in his younger days before he had a mustache, he's a completely different guy. Um, I watched this movie with, called Night Nurse with him and Barbara Stanwyck, which is another pre-code film, and he shows up and doesn't have a mustache. And I didn't realize it was Clark Gable until afterward when I was looking up uh, the movie a little bit. Yeah, he. Uh, I wanted to just look up a little bit more about his career, just definitely to double check that I hadn't seen any. Um, but he had roles in more than 60 different films with like a bunch of different genres, which was really cool. His career lasted almost 40 years, um, and most of that was as a leading man. So incredibly impressive. Probably the most famous movie he's in is Gone with the Wind. And I wanted to ask you if you have seen Gone with the Wind. I have not. No, I've seen three other films with Clark Gable, but I've not seen Gone with the Wind. Okay. I have also not seen Gone with the Wind. Um, it's long and I don't have a lot of time. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, If you want to watch another Clark Gable, um, there's a movie with him and Myrna Loy and Spencer Tracy and basically a thruple called Test Pilot. That is like a fantasy I have. Yeah. No, it's... That's it's, so great. Yeah, it's exactly that. I um, love Myrna Loy. Do you have anything in... Uh, do you have a, no a note about this movie like him undressing and why that was important no can i tell you now please do okay i do remember the scene quite well <laughs> so the scene in which they're in the cabin together and clark gable is uh basically teasing father colbert's character about like undressing um so when he undresses he takes off his shirt and shows that he's bare-chested um which and not wearing an undershirt and so an urban legend basically is that the scale of men's undershirts declined like noticeably um, because Clark Gable wasn't wearing one. So why do I need to wear one? Um, so, you know, a shirtless king. Love that. I definitely noticed in that scene like that they could have played Ellie off as sort of like a a prudish character of like she could have stopped him sooner is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say or been like embarrassed or like oh my gosh what are you doing this is and she does not push back and I was like hell yes yeah, sister <laughs> <laughs> not until like the very end yeah not until it's like absolutely necessary but like <laughs> yeah. there was never a moment to play her up like like a virgin queen or whatever yeah that she yeah. had like never seen a man undress before even though um, i think in the movie they say like she has never been in the room with a man that's yeah she says she's never been alone in a room with a man before but they didn't like make her prudish which right, i appreciated 100%. yeah They're, they, she just because you've drive. never done it doesn't mean you don't want it so like, hey and when clark gable's there <laughs> clark gable's there for you so um <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> what else stood out to you on first watch so, of course, because I knew this was a genre stable going in, that was really one of the only things I knew about it. But there are a lot of rom-com moments. There's a lot of classic moments. As you said earlier, that there's a lot that you can see in modern day movies and what we know to be the like the tropes, the classics. Um, I really loved when she stood up on the bus and then the bus started and she gets bumped into his lap and then they sort of look at each other like, angry but not that angry and like that's such a moment that happens all the time in <laughs> rom-coms um going to an inn and there's only one room left and they have to share the room like that's in every fantasy novel of all time <laughs> and like just their general antics i thought were were very sweet and uh just very romantic comedy 
Yeah, and like I agree, like their chemistry and all their anger that melts away and once they defrost they're so charming together and they have good chemistry like not only the actors but like the characters it's all just textbook because this is literally the textbook yeah you mentioned like the enemies to lovers arc i also thought about the the will they won't they mm-hmm. like both of those are are very classic and almost like rudimentary yeah. tropes at this point. <laughs> I, I This watch, I noticed like how much tension of the movie is just about like how they'll sleep. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, oh, are we get, well, I guess we got to make this wall. Oh, you're going to, you're still making the wall. Oh, let me yeah. come around the wall. And also apparently the walls of Jericho bit was like a workaround because Claudette Colbert didn't want to undress on screen. Oh, I so like that. So that was that. like a way to, to, to work around it um because that's actually that's actually really interesting um not to get so hashtag shots film bro on you but that was a shot that really stood out to me when i was watching is that first time that they're in the cabin and they are sleeping in the separate beds and she's undressing but then the lights go out and you just sort of see like her the silhouette of her head up against the the window that it's raining and you see just like the glimmer of her eye, but like you don't see the outline of her body. You don't see like him trying to peek a look like it's very like classy still. Um, there's not, not that I ever expected this movie to have like raunchy moments, but like there's not even like a hint of like risque, but it is also not, outwardly prudish like it's somewhere really nicely it's very respectful i guess is the word i'm looking for yeah 100 percent. so i i know that sometimes people listen to these episodes without having seen both movies maybe they like one over the other or maybe they're just good dedicated friends of ours but i want to explain the visuals of the wall of jericho just in case people haven't seen this movie from 90 years ago um so in that first stop of the night they go to this a hotel or whatever there's one room left they're gonna or they only have money for one room that's what it is and the place has two beds which was very uh typical of the moment men and women were not even husband and wife like didn't share beds and clark gable puts like a clothes wire basically from one end of the room to the other he hooks it on like bed like on uh coat hooks essentially and then he takes like a a wool blanket and sort of props it up on the on the wire to you know what you would imagine like if you're hanging something to dry and he uses it as sort of like a curtain between the two of them and they're joking about how it's you know the walls of jericho which is a a biblical reference um and then they do this in every stop as a way to like create privacy for one another and then of course it becomes the the foil and she finally like peeks her head around and wants to fall in love and then you know the the reference and the joke at the end when it comes all the way around um to the very last shot you don't even see them kiss you just um are explained that they want did they get a trumpet is that right yes Um, because the trumpet knocked down the walls of jericho yeah walls of jericho this is zach and amanda's biblical corner i guess (laughs) (laughs) for more information please find me pretty much any other time (laughs) i know so much about the bible i'd be the same yeah (laughs) as Um, i sit in my childhood bedroom recording this podcast (laughs) so other than religious guilt what have you thought about the most since watching it's really funny the movie is super funny um 
I wanted to just state, this is not something I was surprised by. There's a calm of the rom-com. I get it. Um, but it is something that has like stuck with me. And the question is, what have you thought about most? So I did think like, uh, just, there's just a lot of like very funny moments in the movie. I really liked when he's like mad at his editor. Peter's mad at his editor in the beginning. And he keeps sending the editor one telegram at a time with just like a tiny nugget of information and he's sending it super slow and I <laughs> just thought that was like maybe it's because I'm a journalist but I was like that's so funny <laughs> uh, one more journalism thing just their phone calls him to his editor Peter to his editor and how they're just like at each other's throats all the time and how he's just like going back and forth I just it's very funny um, and then my note here is I would get fired so fast <laughs> If I acted like that. <laughs> oh, my God. Seriously. I mean, imagine if Peter was uh, working under uh, Cary Grant's character from His Girl Friday. I think they would go, yeah. go nuts. Um, <laughs> what else have you thought about? So maybe you can explain this to me a little more. But I was kind of surprised that the father was like talking her out of the marriage to this like kind of well-known guy. And like convinced her to leave the altar. That felt really modern to me. Did I miss something? I mean, so off the top, uh, he's not approving of the relationship. Oh, he calls him a fortune hunter. Even Peter calls King Wesley like a fortune hunter and a kind of a goon. What we gather is that Ellie is with King Wesley because that her father doesn't want her to be with him. God, like, it. it's okay, a rebellious so I had type mi- thing. I had missed that part. Um, the last thing that I've thought a lot about is her wedding dress at the end. I am not, maybe it's just because I'm getting older and like my friends are getting married and my internal clock is thinking about weddings, I guess, but I've never really been much to like think much, I've never really been one to think much about weddings and wedding dresses. Um, I never had like a, a Pinterest board as a young teen about what I want my wedding to look like one day. But her wedding dress is so stunning. And I think I've been thinking about it a lot. So just so people know, it is a white satin mermaid dress, not as tight as like what you would know uh, an average, like modern mermaid dress to be. I don't know if you ever shop for prom dresses, <laughs> but Can't it's a style of dress. But so it's a white satin dress. It has this really long train. She's got these big puffy sleeves that are not like comical, but are really classy. And she's got flowers around the neckline, and she just looks so gorgeous. And I like immediately I clocked it, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> I want one. <laughs> How do I look like that? It's so pretty. And maybe it's like the film stock also and like the 1930s film, the way it's projecting the satin, which I feel like wasn't something I have seen a lot in black and white films, a lot of fur in black and white films, a lot of like wool and tweed. But it was something about it that really just like, like was really captivating. It also helps that, like, she's gorgeous, but also... Yeah, and it helps like, that canonically they're rich as hell. Yeah, for sure. Um, but new thing to think about. Maybe I'll have a uh, a Claudette Colbert-style dress one day. <laughs> do you like this dress more than... This is the only other wedding I can think of that we've covered in this show. Um, do you like it more than the Melancholia wedding dress? 
Well, I'm going to have to say yes, because I feel like this is the only time I've ever mentioned a wedding dress on the <laughs> that's, podcast. That's I, honestly, I just remember that dress from Melancholia mainly because of uh, Kirsten Dunst. Let's look things up. What was the first thing you looked up about the movie? I wanted to double check uh, if I had seen a Clark Gable movie and I just hadn't known like before I really was like tuned into this kind of stuff. Um, and no, I went through his whole filmography, hadn't seen any of them. Um, and this movie came about halfway through his career. So he's definitely an established star at this point, but he still had a long way to go. So I always like to kind of check on these things. You know, where is this in their run? Um, I had never heard of Claudette Colbert before seeing this film. And so I literally looked up, who is she? <laughs> I don't, I didn't know anything about her. So she was a Broadway star that transferred to both the small screen and, and the silver screens. She had some television run as well. Um, she was originally signed by Paramount back when that was a thing. Imagine if that was still a thing. That is like something I think about sometimes. I'm like, imagine if only one studio could use Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I know. I think That's about so it wild. The studio system was so weird. So weird. But honestly, primarily, she worked as an independent actor and a freelance actor, which wasn't that common. So I thought that was like a really cool thing that she was going through at the time as well. Yeah. A fun note about both these people. Um, they were not the first choice at all for the casting. Um, Miriam Hopkins rejected the part of Ellie. Robert Montgomery and Myrna Loy were offered the roles. Myrna Loy called it one of the worst scripts she had read. So I was like watching this and kind of thinking like, why isn't Myrna Loy in this movie? <laughs> Basically, it's because she was already like a star and she was like, I don't I don't want to do this. Um, this is the same year as The Thin Man too. So she was about to start cooking. She is like one of the most jaw-dropping actors we've ever I love her so much. Experience on this whole show. <laughs> I think about Myrna Loy all the time. <laughs> same. I'm so sad that uh, that collection is no longer on Criterion, but maybe they'll bring it back. Yeah. Um, but also, but also, Betty Davis wanted the role, but she wanted she was under contract at Warner Brothers, and they didn't want to lend her. Um, and Clark Gable's th this is like another urban legend. He was lent to Columbia um, as a punishment for his role at the studio he was at because um, he hmm. was like refusing so many. Uh, roles and he was just like not cooperative and so they like quote unquote punished him by making him play this movie that has been refuted by recent biographies but it is fun to consider it in the canon um, but then they all won <laughs> they, they yeah. all won everything literally um, just two more fun little facts about Claudette Colbert she's French thus why oh. I went with Colbert instead of Colbert um, and her first wedding was in Yuma, Arizona. Oh, my God. <laughs> if there is a tie, I will find it. Jesus. It is quite literally my career, but it is also my passion. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else did you look about the movie? So, of course, I needed to know more about the very famous Oscar run. It was the first film to do this. Um, it is one of three films, the second of which to appear on Blind Spotters to win the big five, which means best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best screenplay or adapted screenplay. In this case, best adapted. Um, the other two movies are One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is an incredible film, one of my favorite films, mm -hmm. and Silence of the Lambs, which was one of the first movies we ever did. How fun. Yeah, so those are the three to ever win the big five. Um, I can't ever, I don't, 
it would have to be really something amazing to ever do it again. Um, but it is also like wildly considered one of the best movies ever made. So that's yeah. very good. Um, and it is worth considering this happened at the seventh Academy Awards. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then under this same umbrella, uh, Columbia Pictures, which put out this movie, had been a, quote, Poverty Row studio. So they had not been making any money. And it was not one of the, like, studios you really wanted to work with. Um, and, of course, everything with Columbia would change because of these Oscar wins. And Columbia is still around. And it's still, like, a huge motion picture studio. So how exciting. Good for them. It did. It happened one night for them. It did. <laughs> um, what are your favorite scenes from this film? So I alluded to it earlier, but my favorite scene is definitely the bit that they do when they have to pretend being a married couple when the cops come in to their first inn that they're staying at. And they're just like over dramatizing and she has like a, a wild accent and they're like fighting and she is like quick on her toes to keep up with him. And it's just so it's so fun. I think that's also the scene where, I mean, it's classic rom-com stuff, but that's the scene where they're like, oh, we kind of make a good team. Wow. Yeah. You can tell it's like the first little glimmer of like, oh, yeah, okay. I see. They they see something's yeah. brewing. It's also funny because I think that's the same sequence as the donut dunking um, yes. situation, which yes. uh, it, it's true. If you leave the donut in too long, it gets soggy and falls off. So. I did like how angry he got. <laughs> I mean, he's just he was just another guy being a dude. Yeah, don't I know it? Um, I'll take this moment to shout out uh, a couple of my favorite scenes. I love the hitchhiking scene; it's just a good bit. And then I also enjoyed the uh, the singing on the bus. Oh yeah, that's a very sweet sight scene as well. It was like some big old Hollywood shit, and also um, Frank Capra is the third guy who sings in that scene. Oh, the director of the film. That's fun. Yeah, it was just a good time. Um, all right, so uh, do you have any other questions about this film? So I wanted to know why it's called It Happened One Night if it does not happen in one night. And I even looked up, it is adapted from a, a play or a screenplay called The Night Bus, not even It Happened One Night. So do you have the answers? Uh, no, but okay. I can just assume that the... <laughs> change of heart happened one night oh okay that's the best i could do also because they didn't want to call it the night bus because i guess there was like too many road movies too many bus movies and so they didn't want to just get shipped in with the other ones well, that makes sense do you have any final questions for me um i have a few um do oh. you have a preferred method of dunking your donuts i'm not generally a donut dunker because i feel like dunking is for cake donuts and that's not my go-to. But I dunk and make uh, biscottis quite often. Okay, that makes sense. And I, in that case, because biscottis are harder, I'm a, I'm a soak kind of Yeah, gal. yeah. I think but that's, the... that's as close as I can get to answering the question. <laughs> if they remade this movie, I mean, they remake this movie all the time. But any rom-com duo you want to see, like, hop on a bus? So I was actually thinking about this while I was watching it because I had a feeling you'd ask me. Um, <laughs> all I could think of was Sydney Sweeney, I feel like would be really good at this role. Um, and then, of course, like the names that came to mind were like uh, Glenn, whatever his name is. Powell? 
yeah, that's in that rom-com coming up with her. Yeah. Um, but then I was like, oh, I'm only thinking that because <laughs> the marketing's working on you. It is totally working on me. I don't even know what the name of that movie is, but I will be seeing it. Um, yeah, I couldn't come up with any like good options. I didn't think about it too long, though. That's fair. Um, I don't have any other questions, but I did want to just uh, add on a couple more notes uh, or just one more note about Clark Gable. Um, apparently, he was Hitler's favorite actor. And Great. so when he was in World War II, Hitler said, if you catch him, bring him alive to me. Oh, well. And that must have been so weird as Clark Gable to know that yeah. you were Hitler's favorite actor. Something I'm learning a lot right now with just like the Taylor Swift and, and Travis Kelsey moment is that I don't really need to know everything about celebrities. Um, I, I like celebrity gossip to an extent. I'm obviously a huge TV and movie person. I like to know what people are up to, but like, I don't need to know everything. Yeah. And I feel like Clark Gable was like, I just didn't need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep that to yourself. And the news cycle was so much slower back then. Oh, gosh. Um, oh, the, uh, the other quick question I had was, uh, have you ever ridden a Greyhound bus? No. Oh, <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> I have ridden trains and buses, but not the Greyhound bus. Yeah, neither have I. I. I have known people who have taken Greyhounds, like from college and stuff. Yeah, I had a car, so. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I had you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I know that this movie is probably, since it's the earliest movie we've discussed here on Blind Spotters, but it is, you know, almost 100 years old. People might not have a good understanding of like an old movie timeline. Uh, I'm just going to give it that that title. So you've referenced this before that this movie is pre-code. What is pre-code and who are the main players? And then bring us into like when does old Hollywood start? Is this at the same time? All this kind of stuff. Walk us through a little bit of that timeline. Okay, so the... Pre-code is in reference to the Hayes Code or the Motion Picture Association Code, um, which basically censored the content in movies. I'll get more into that in a little bit. Um, but just to divvy up the eras, um, before the pre-code era, um, you had the silent age of Hollywood, which is like the 1910s and 20s. Um, late 1920s, you get the rise of the quote-unquote talkies, a.k.a. sound pictures. Um, and then around 1928 to 1930, you have the golden age of Hollywood, the pre-code era, if you will. These movies um, are making the most of the sound available to them. And the content of the movies is also a little bit more risque. There's a lot more um, depicted or implied sexual innuendo, um, romantic and sexual relationships between white and black people, profanity, drug use, adultery, prostitution, abortion, violence, homosexuality. All the things that uh, you kind of don't think of when you think of old movies or um, life 100 years ago. Uh, actually, you know what? It, it was happening. Uh, some big movies in this era include Public Enemy, um, Scarface. Uh, if you've seen Scorsese's movie The Aviator, um, they're in the pre-code era at the start of the film um, whenever he's making Hell's Angels. Um, the stars of the time... Uh, include Clark Gable, Bay Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, Mae West, um, 
basically if you wanted just a pre-code education just look up barbara stanwick movies um in those early days you can't really go wrong with babs um the thin man was a pre-code movie as well it came out the same year as it happened one night um but the code was introduced to kind of um people were concerned about the lewd content that was coming out of hollywood and they wanted to censor it a little bit more um there's some really deep and extensive writing on this um but generally uh, the Hayes Code included things such as if someone performed an immoral act, they had to be punished on screen. So that's why, like, at the end of movies, sometimes they'll just, like, quickly get arrested and then the movie ends. Um, Hitchcock was really creative in the ways that he worked around the code or really frustrated by the ways he had to switch his movies to align with the code. I think if Psycho came out pre-code, you wouldn't have the weird last 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> Uh, explaining away what happened also one of my favorite ridiculous rules is that uh if people were laying on a couch together they had to have like one of them had to have a foot on the floor because i guess you can't have sex with one foot on the floor also the hayes code is named after will h hayes who was the head of the motion picture association um in 1945 he retired and eric johnson was elected to replace him and he kept that role until 1963 um, and so during Johnson's time, he quietly, quote unquote, liberalized the code, reduced the restrictions. So that's why, you know, once you get into the 50s and 60s, you have a little bit more content seeping through. Um, and in 1948, the Supreme Court kind of neutered the ability to enforce the code over films shown in the U.S. A big reason of this is because um, foreign cinema started to become bigger and they were free of the code and they're creating all this great art that people wanted to see and that that was coming into the u.s and so the hayes code was kind of just like being circumvented in a way so by the mid 1960s um really opens up the door one for a french new wave and two for a new hollywood which includes like bonnie and clyde the graduate um and all the really awesome movies that come in the 70s um again there's a lot of great writing and a lot of cool movies that come pre-code um, that you should check out. Uh, Criterion put out a collection of, I think, pre-code Paramount movies a couple months ago. And then um, just if you look up pre-code hits, uh, there's a lot of like really fun uh, low-key bangers in that in, in those. And a lot of them are just like on YouTube in full. I think um, the Night Nurse movie I was talking about with Gable and Stanwyck is on YouTube um, in full. Sorry if I'm blowing up their spot, but, you know, shout out to Free Streams. Uh, but yeah, so that's the synopsis. That's the old Hollywood corner, if you will. Um, and I hope that that all made sense. I love it. Thank you so much for that history lesson. Zach, no one knows it better than you. And that is only in regard to the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, guys. Amanda will have her corner as well. That's coming up in just Don't a second. Worry. Uh, I have a whole subsection in my notes. There we go. <laughs> um, as we round out, would you watch this movie again? So I thought maybe, maybe not. Yeah. It's not that I didn't like the movie, but I will just be completely honest. I did have to watch it three times because I fell asleep the first two times. <laughs> that could be a reflection of my sleep schedule. It could be many other things. But um, yeah, so we'll see. Not as high on my list as other movies we've seen. That's fair. I enjoyed this pod um, swap mainly because it gave me a reason to rewatch the movie. Um, otherwise, I don't know if I would have revisited it in the next couple of years, but I'm sure it will come around again. Yeah. So if people liked this one, uh, what other movies do you think they should check out? This was so difficult because like you could just put any rom-com 
Like I could yeah. put the Thin Man. I could put Philadelphia Story. I could put uh, like Singing in the Rain. Even like, um, but uh, I decided to kind of pick a few high and lowbrow ones. Uh, first, I'll say Pride and Prejudice. Yes, I'm talking about the uh, mid 2000s one um, directed by Joe Wright, starring Tom Walmsgams and Keira Knightley. Truly incredible movie. One of the most uh, beautiful and perfect movies I've seen in a while. And a movie I hadn't seen until like 2021. A great uh, textbook, Enemies to Lovers film, is The Cutting Edge, um, which is a 1992 film starring Moira Kelly and D.B. Sweeney. D.B. Sweeney basically looks like Paul Rudd in this movie. And Moira Kelly, um, you might know her from The West Wing. You might know her from One Tree Hill as Lucas Scott's mom. Um, it's two. It's a figure skater and a hockey player who have to team up and do to become an ice dancing couple to go to the Olympics. Nice. Toe pick is one of the most iconic lines. Um, and it's really enjoyable and silly. Um, and then uh, just as a shout out to our good friend, Maya in the two thousands, princess diaries too, Anne Hathaway, Chris Pine, they have a common goal. They got to get it done. Even if they don't like each other at first. Um, love it and shout out to julie andrews but like i was saying earlier truly any romantic comedy stems from this movie so you could think it happened one night for all your favorite rom-coms yeah thanks it happened one night thank you it happened one night we did it let's uh get spooky let's get spooky baby Zach, you watched John Carpenter's Halloween. This is a movie that was on the list from like day one. What happened in this film? Halloween, uh, directed by John Carpenter, written by Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Um, The movie opens with a point of view shot as someone watches a boy and girl make out and such. Um, The aforementioned boy and girl go have sex upstairs and then the boy leaves like eight seconds later. Good for him, I guess. Uh, The POV character uh, then grabs a knife, goes to the girl's room, and kills her. The killer, it is revealed, is a six-year-old named Michael Myers. Fast forward 15 years later, and Dr. Sam Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, and an assistant go to to pick up Myers from his mental institution and take him to prison. Uh, But when they get there, everybody's walking outside, which seems sketchy, and then Michael Myers ambushes them steals the car and escapes because he can drive myers drives himself back to haddonfield illinois his hometown uh and along the way he kills a man steals a mask and some supplies um meanwhile while he's traveling back home high school student laurie strode played by oscar winner jamie lee curtis catches myers attention when she drops off some keys at the old myers house because her dad is a realtor who is trying to sell it as she goes about her day, which is Halloween, she notices Michael stalking her in the distance, but is kind of unsure if she's just like seeing things because it's Halloween. He's a guy in a mask. Who knows? She is disillusioned of the notion as she walks home from school with her friends, Andy and Linda, played by Nancy Loomis and PJ Souls, respectively. That evening, Lori babysits Tommy Doyle while Annie babysits Lindsay across the street. Annie takes Lindsay over to Lori so she can go pick up her boyfriend, Paul. 
and Linda and her boyfriend Bob are on her way so they can all have like a little soiree. After dropping Lindsay off, Annie goes to get uh, in her car in the garage and she is strangled and killed by Michael. Uh, Linda and Bob show up to the house and instead of being weirded out that um, Annie is not there, uh, they decide to have sex. Afterward, Michael kills them both as well. Curious after unknowingly hearing Linda's death over the phone, Lori goes over there where she is horrified to find her friends murdered and pretty much put on display, um, including the tombstone of Michael's sister, Judith, who he killed at the top of the movie. Uh, After a struggle, she escapes the house and runs back to her own, and Michael follows her. After several attempts where they both try to kill each other, Lori, with the help of Dr. Loomis, dispatches Michael when Loomis shoots him several times and he falls out of the window. However, when they look over the edge, Michael is gone. And then Laurie asks, is that the boogeyman? And Dr. Loomis says, yes. How'd I do? Dun, dun, dun. So good. This movie rips. It's yeah. so, like, even watching it this time, I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> this movie is so good. So other than it being so good and ripping, <laughs> why did you pick this one? So this is... Probably the most famous movie by this director. It's one of, John Carpenter is one of my top directors. Um, this movie set a standard. It was unlike anything in horror that was going on at that time. Um, and it's one of the longest and most successful horror franchises of all time. Um, a lot of the 70s horror films like uh, Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street, and Halloween like ended up having s- multiple and multiple and multiple uh, sequels and really just none of the Friday the 13th or uh, or Nightmare on Elm Street movies are that good after the first ones I guess like Freddy vs. Jason is kind of fun but like they're really not that good after this where like Halloween has some pretty bad but some pretty solid sequels and so it's just really fun how it is one of the most recognizable franchises and like all of movie history so i like can't even imagine watching this movie for the first time so i'm really excited to know what were your first watch impressions and what stood out to you so before i get into it maybe more than any movie we've ever watched on this pod i'm gonna sound so dumb no that's fine (laughs) okay so first thing that's i watched singing in the rain and no. my response was like, wow, this movie's great. I know. That's all That's all my feedback is. Like, wow, it's great. Uh, first impression, well, got to start with the intro. Um, I looked up the budget of this movie like in the middle of that sequence. I got paused it really quick and realized this movie was made for $300,000, which is basically one and a half million today, which is basically crumbs. Um, that's like nothing. So I love this intro shot because it's innovative. I know it probably took so much coordination. I even like how the camera goes out of focus when Michael picks up the knife. Um, and then the reveal that he was a six-year-old child is uh, just a perfect punch exclamation point um, to set the tone for this movie. Um, it also wasn't like a hyper-violent start either. Like, you know, it, it's bloody, but like you aren't seeing any, you know, bits and bobs being thrown around. Uh, so I, I was pretty much in uh, right away because of that intro. Yeah, it's really, it was instantly iconic. Like a lot of people's responses at the time was also like from the intro being like, oh, here we go. (laughs) And honestly, even like before that, uh, when the movie poster came out and it just said, 
Halloween, like John Carpenter's Halloween. The fact that there just hadn't been a Halloween-themed horror movie yet, everyone was like, I'm so in. Like, horror is in its peak renaissance at this time, and it was just like something so fresh and new that was going on. So I'm glad that all these years later, you're watching it and you're still having that reaction. Yeah, and to go off of your point, other thing that stood out, elite title, great SEO by them. Um, I enjoyed learning that the original title to this story was The Babysitter Murders, um, and then they just decided to set it in Halloween. Uh, it seems so obvious now, but uh, I'm sure it would have been great around the time to be like, oh my god, let's go see this movie called Halloween around Halloween. What fun. Um, so obviously that stood out. Um, another thing that um, stood out on first watch was, damn, Michael Myers is a freak for real. He's the boogeyman. He's the boogie. He is devil incarnate. Um, I don't know how he learned how to drive. Uh, I don't know if, like, because he's the boogeyman, Satan, like, just gave him the ability to drive back home and know where everything is. Uh, but it is interesting that he didn't turn into, like, the fucking Terminator that I assume that he is until, like, the end when he's like busting through the doors and busting through the closet up until that point in the movie he's just like a guy with a knife should i just do it now should i just like get into some of my notes now? Uh, sure okay so one of the reasons that like this movie was so innovative at the time is because this really came out in a time where all horror movies were about the devil they were about Satan. They were about demons. You got Amityville Horror. You got The Exorcist. You have these movies where like this entity is taking over something and it's going to just kill and kill and kill. And this movie was about just like a dude who killed some babysitters. It is so different. And I love that you're saying like, oh, he has like the devil inside him. But the whole point was that he's just like a guy who killed his sister and then came back to his house and killed people in his house. Like that is the simplicity of it was also what was so scary. Um, yeah. And I also found it scary that you never really know, understand or learn his motivation. Like Dr. Loomis is a bad doctor. Um, yeah. Right. For sure. <laughs> definitely misdiagnosed him and whatever, but like you, you don't, he doesn't speak. You don't see him. He just mouth breathes. You don't know what he wants at all. You don't know why he's doing anything, which is terrifying in its own self. Like, there's so many scenes of movies where, like, the bad guy is about to kill a character and someone, and they're like, why are you doing this? You don't have that moment with Michael Myers. He's just coming at you, and he doesn't care. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, like, horror at the time was about, like, tormenting the rich. There was a lot of that, like, you're making these immoral stances in life, and then you have to be... You have to be tortured for it. Um, and they were all about adults, like, except The Exorcist, but that was, like, based on a book, so, like, that didn't really count. And it was a lot about, like, the mother's reaction to her daughter being controlled by the devil. Um, but uh, this, there's, like, almost no adults in this whole film, which is very fun. And all the adults are dumb, <laughs> which, like, ends up being, like, a horror trope forever. Um, and also, like, all of the like horror movies of the time that are now classics featured a big star at the center. Like you had to have somebody sign on in order to like get this movie made. And like the guy who plays Sam Loomis is the most notable name of the film at the time. That's like nobody <laughs> <laughs> in comparison. So it was just like so 
bare bones, but that's what made it scary. Like, or if you're not a weird summer camp, Jason's not coming for you. But like, you could be a babysitter just like in Illinois. Yeah. And like Michael Myers could be coming for you. And that was something that just like hadn't really happened. Yeah, I touched on that a little bit in notes where it's like, this is also scary because it it came home, like the horror came home yeah. um, to the suburbs where, um, to my knowledge and research and to your own uh, words, like was not the case in horror movies before. You had to go to the haunted spot um, for it to kind of bubble up. Um so that's definitely intriguing and scary and, and really fun by the way they did that. Um, and then the other thing that stood out, I mean, and, and it's one of the most iconic parts of this movie, if not the most iconic part, is this score is fucking great. Um, it was so great and it was implemented so well that I kept forgetting that Laurie couldn't also hear the score every time she saw Michael. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. And I was like, like the, the, the way the tension built, um, I had read that. Uh, because they shot the movie out of sequence because they shot it in 20 days um, Carpenter would give Jamie Lee Curtis like a 1 to 10 on how scared she needed to be Um, and she I mean obviously it's Jamie Lee Curtis we know how great she is but the performance is so good because every time the score kicks in and every time she sees um, Michael like the tension ratchets up just a little bit Uh, and John Carpenter who is known to have great scores in this movie obviously did it um, himself and uh i i loved how it was implemented in this one yeah he uh i'll i'll dip in and out of sound corner but he did the music himself with just a synthesizer in like a room in three days um to compose all of the music and record all of the music in three days it's like so wild yeah. um but he did it because he had like an insanely tight budget for this film um, and originally there was no music, there were no sound effects in the film. And he showed it to a film executive at the time who basically said like, well, that wasn't, that's like, that wasn't scary at all. Like she was like, that's not, <laughs> that's nothing. And he's, he's like, okay, so I have to like add something that gets across the music. And he essentially makes this Jaws like theme that plays Anytime you see Michael Myers, the way you see the theme plays anytime you see the shark in Jaws. And it is so daunting. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, this film critic, uh, Matt Zoller Seitz, had like a really interesting part where he said he doesn't run, he walks, which makes him so much scarier. And then listen to the score. There's not a lot of fuss in the score. It is minimalistic and effective as the butcher knife that Michael carries. Mm. And I love that like this movie, because I had such a tight budget also, but it's just like, what is the simplest thing that could happen? Like you just get stabbed while you're babysitting and the guy can't die. And it's like scary sounding. <laughs> and then like, that's the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I don't bake very much, but I know like when you have recipes that include chocolate, they like sometimes suggest putting like, instant espresso in because it lifts the chocolate flavors hmm, more yes i feel like the score like lifts the horror of it all um, absolutely that's with any movie like music adds or should add um to the impact of it but like because of the kind of minimalistic uh vibe of the score um i, I think it's all fitting for the production and and everything else um that it kind of just binds it all together uh unrelated then we can move on um I don't, did you ever see that trend? It was like the Michael Myers challenge. I don't think so. So I only know this because like some NBA teams would do it. 
they would have two people start at the same th- thing. They would have one person sprint uh, and like with a pair of keys and try to unlock a door while the person behind them was just like walking them down. And it was like sh- <laughs> shocking how many times that like the quote unquote Michael Myers person got caught up to the person running away. Uh, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, I did just want to say the score did not win the Oscar because it was also the same year as some John Williams score. I think it was Star Wars, whatever 1978 was. That's, that sounds right. The most iconic score <laughs> potentially of all time. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, aside from the score, what have you thought about most since you've watched the movie? We'll circle back to the score, actually. But the thing that I've thought about the most is just how simple and good like this movie is, which is a silly note but like the simplicity of it all it's just once you get past the intro once michael steals the car it's basically you're just hanging out it's a high school movie um you're just with jamie lee curtis and our friends walking around making plans for later in the day running some errands and maybe having like a creepy guy around the bush but not really um they're trying to figure out when they're gonna fuck um they're trying to figure out who's coming over to when are they does anybody have booze like it's it's so easy. It's like a it's just like a simple meal where all the ingredients are perfectly placed. There's nothing standing out. It's just very satisfying and wholesome and heartwarming. Not the movie, but like, you know, just like you're filled because of this movie's success. Um, it's a meat and potatoes movie. I love the little fake outs too. Uh, you know, in the beginning and, and on the walk home from school where uh, I, I think honestly the scariest, the most scared I felt was when someone comes up behind Lori and grabs her and it's one of her friends, but like, it's just the classic uh, kind of jump scare grab scare um, that you'll see. And I was surprised by how much buildup this movie had. Like there's not a lot of like all the things go down in the last like 15 minutes. We're, we're saying these things are scary and haunting and terrifying. I wasn't really scared watching this movie, um, which is saying a lot. Cause I'm a fucking wuss. <laughs> I was really excited to show you this movie because I really thought you could handle it. And I'm sure you watched it in the daytime and all that good stuff yes. that you do to prep yourself. <laughs> but like, I was like, I I really can't express it to you without giving away so much. But I really think you can do this one. Uh, so I have a coworker. His name is Kevin. And his, his Instagram handle is Halloween Kevin. Not because he loves <laughs> Halloween the holiday. I think it's because he loves this movie so much. Shout out to Halloween, Kevin. And he, he's even given me a list of movies I need to watch and stuff. And Halloween's one of them. And he's like, dude, even if you don't like scary movies, I think you can handle this. So I knew that much going into. I know this is a like an independent production and a low budget production. And it kind of added to the charm of it. Like I, I maybe I was more forgiving of like any of the goofs or like um, some silly moments that happen in low budget movies. But like honestly, like sometimes 70s movies, the pacing can kind of be slow. Like watching Rocky for the first time, man, those first 40 minutes take 40 minutes. Rocky was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing for you. <laughs> but with Halloween, like it's it's a slow burn, it's a slow build, and then it and then it gets going. And I, I just uh knowing John Carpenter was so early in his career, the the pacing and everything was really impressive. But I think that's one of the like best parts of the film is that by the time the murders start happening, it's almost like you're exhaling for the first time. Like you're, it's just been so tense and you've been like, he's creeping on people. He's stalking people. He's watching them. He's prepping for them, like all this kind of stuff. And you're like, just do something so I can like (laughs) get rid of this energy in my body. Yeah. Like my favorite scene every time I see this movie is the scene where you're watching Tommy 
uh, go across the playground and you're watching it from Michael Myers's point of view in the car. And it is so scary because you're like, he's going to get that kid. But nothing happens. But the whole time you're like white knuckling. Like, when is he going to get that kid? Kid, go away. Run. <laughs> get a, get an adult. Like any of that kind of stuff. And it never happens. I think that's the scariest part. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one for sure. And I mentioned it, but the other thing I thought about, mainly because it was stuck in my head, was the score. Um, like you mentioned, did it in three days. I like the note that it was in um, 10, 8 or 5, 4 time because uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've been thinking about time signatures recently because <laughs> because the Boy Genius song $20 like oscillates between like three to four different time signatures, like 7, 4, 5, 4, 3, 4. Um, Julia Baker's a fucking genius. Um, they all are. Anyway, um, I haven't seen a ton of Carpenter, but I do know that um, that's often a signature aspect to his films is the score that he himself creates for the movies. Um and he's really great at it. He is. He's a really good composer. All right. So you knew a few things going in, but what were the things you had looked up about the movie after you had seen it? So I almost had a paralysis of choice because there's so much content about this movie. Yes. Despite that, I kept just typing in Halloween into Google, which is not an effective way to look up things about this movie. Um, Neither is Halloween movie. <laughs> right. I also <laughs> learned that. Um, a good resource for me. And if, you, for people who haven't listened to this, I enjoyed Halloween Unmasked, uh, which was from The Ringer um, via Amy Nicholson. She is a great film critic. Uh, at the time, she was with the LA Times. I think she might be with the New York Times now. First thing I thought of to look up was, why was Michael Myers a game changer? Because I wasn't underwhelmed by him, but I was just surprised by how little happens with him, I guess, or like how much, how little he has going on. Um, like where did all this mythology come from and all this stuff. Um, and it was surprising to learn that like something like, you know, the term serial killer wasn't even in the dictionary yet. Um, Mm -hmm. and like you mentioned, horror was about like the devil or about like monsters, like vampires or like Frankenstein and not just like regular dudes. Um, so that was a a big change as well. And then I enjoyed learning that, uh, the mask was like a, uh, Captain Kirk, William Shatner mask that they kind of like fucked up enough to get the impact of scariness and then later lost that mask but it's wild how like this very simple impact of a guy who walks around is played by different actors like as far as body doubles and whatnot um i enjoyed learning that carpenter really didn't give much direction to the people playing michael myers other than the time he stabs bob and holds him up to the wall and carpenter told him to like tilt his head left and right uh, which was so creepy um, and a perfect piece of direction. Learning the context about this movie like just uh, increased my admiration, which was already pretty high. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the serial killers note because in 1978, this movie comes out. That is the first year of the Ted Bundy killings. The Son of Sam summer had just happened not that long ago. The Golden State Killer is really ramping up at this time. Uh, we didn't know about BTK yet. Like... This was the height of serial killers, but we just like weren't exposed to it as much yet. Like it's all starting around the same time. And like imagine if there was like this new entity of like serial killers and then at the same time you're being introduced to a new horror genre of 
serial killer. Like basically, it's it's so genius. Um, I also like that you mentioned the uh, scene where he kills Bob because that is one of the best parts of the movie is that Michael Myers does a bit um, where he dresses up like a ghost, <laughs> bro. Okay, and wears the glasses <laughs> and stabs Lydia. I think her name is. Yeah, I I, I was so gonna funny. I was gonna ask you about this, but we can just talk about it now. That's the funniest shit. Yeah, it's great. Like just imagining that mouth breather being like, huh. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this is gonna be so good. Like he opened the door and I was like, what the fuck am I watching? And there's like callbacks to it in uh Beetlejuice and like Scream has some like callbacks to this movie that uh the girl that gets killed in her car, like that's like there's a scene in Scream that is very similar and it's just really, it's good stuff. It's, yeah, that, the bed sheet thing is so funny. Um, another thing I looked up, uh, I just wanted to learn more about John Carpenter. Um, what I, a dude. What a dude. Uh, there Again, there's a great episode of kind of summing him up in Halloween Unmasked. Um, he grew up uh, on Western Kentucky University campus. But he was an only child. Um, his dad took a job as a music professor. He lived in a log cabin on campus which is so strange. Um, Despite that, and despite, you know, moving to Bowling Green, Kentucky from upstate New York, he was a popular kid. Like, he wasn't just this, like, weirdo recluse. Um, He played guitar. He was one of the first kids at his school who had, like, a Beatles haircut. He was class president. And he talked about, like, a big influence on him was during school, he went to on a field trip to an insane asylum, which is such a weird field trip but so he saw a patient in there who just kept staring at him um and that really had a big impact on him uh from there he went to usc uh with his buddy tommy lee wallace uh tommy lee wallace also worked on halloween and also directed halloween 3 he you know matriculated made student films uh made it for cheap um and then went on to become one of the most iconic directors of the 80s i skipped a bunch but um is there any other little tidbits you'd like to include about john carpenter um, the only other thing I would say is that, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that this franchise has still has movies coming out today and um, he has done the score uh, almost every time. So, like, even though he's not involved in directing anymore, they always invite him back to to redo the score um, and update it. And the, the main theme is still the same, but, you know, the, the little songs that play throughout yeah. the thing. So I always think that's cool. He's a very cool mustache. And his children play music as well. I've always maintained that musicians are like the coolest brand of performing arts people. And then another question I had, and this kind of ties back to John Carpenter as well, is I wanted to learn more about Deborah Hill. Um, she co-wrote this movie. She was an executive producer on it. I was cool learning that um, Carpenter and Hill were dating, I think, at the time. And Carpenter really pushed to have her be a producer. And famously, not a lot of female producers at the time or ever um, but she kind of put her foot down quick and like everybody got the gist of like, oh, she's a producer. She is a good producer. Um, if you look at her career, she had a long career as said producer. Um, so uh, it's cool that she got her start on this movie. Um, <laughs> Carpenter I actually left her after this movie um, for Adrian Barbeau. <laughs> um, Yikes. And yeah, you can't win them all. But, uh, but again, her, she has some great um, credits to her name. You know, she helped out on the fog escape from new york um halloween two and three clue uh adventures in babysitting uh and then she reunited with uh, carpenter for the remake of the fog in 2005 
and then also just wanted to learn more about the reception in the time and then the legacy uh, at the time mixed critically but spread word of mouth it was really entertaining reading reviews at the time uh, just talking about how scary and terrifying this movie was um, stories of people like standing up in the middle of the theater yelling at characters to like not go in the house or to run Pauline Kael did not like this movie uh, I'm not surprised <laughs> but then again I don't know how many movies Pauline Kael liked respectfully but again spread word of mouth it made a boatload of money it made 70 million dollars uh and it did get the four stars from roger ebert who said quote halloween is a visceral experience we aren't seeing the movie we're having it happen to us it's frightening Mm -hmm. maybe you don't like movies that are really scary then don't see this one he's right it's happening to you like the pov aspect of this movie is so unique and it is horrifying it spawned a genre like you said you mentioned nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th we talked about how in the psychopod that was like the first slasher film um but this really kicked off the genre of like horror slasher uh like not created but kind of created the final girl um jamie lee curtis obviously who who got cast in part big part because she is janet lee's daughter janet lee star of psycho I can't believe it's taken us this long to talk about Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> There's so much to talk about with this movie. but I know. Um, I mean, we could, we could talk about her more. I thought she was, obviously, we talked about it with um, when we were talking about the score, but like really impressive in how she ratcheted everything. One of my notes was literally like, wow, she is so she's always just been very motherly. Like, <laughs> uh, Well, they want to play her as sort of like the dweeb of the group. Yeah. Um, but... This was like her first film. Yeah, yeah. And instantly she became like someone to have in your movies. The idea of a final girl, this is the best example. You know, her connection to her mother who was a famous scream queen and then she became a famous scream queen. Like those are just excellent uh, connections. I mean, she's still in the movies. Like this is best franchise she's like the best thing she's a part of it's really cool jamie lee one of our greats obviously she just wanted an oscar for everything everywhere all at once i i knew her for most of my life as the mom from freaky friday absolutely <laughs> i think that's fair um which i think is just speaks to our age <laughs> our age but yeah she she is fantastic the, i think of the scene when she's running back from the house um knocking on the neighbor's doors and everything and i'm like oh okay there's the scream queen because up until that point she's just like the cool maybe dweebish like maybe a virgin like whatever like our main character in a horror movie um and then she dials it up um in that climactic sequence yeah when i think of the uh scream queen i'm gonna in regards to jamie lee i always think of the uh the closet scene oh yeah where he like bust through like the slots of the closet and like all he's doing is just like throwing his knife around and she's losing her mind um that to me is like that's what i think of when people say scream queen also really impressive work by Lori, just like facet faceting uh wired hanger into a weapon and then like stabbing him between the mask into the eye that's why she's a final girl because she's smart as hell do you have any other like is she your favorite final girl I was not prepped for that question. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, how dare you? <laughs> I was like viscerally offended. <laughs> I don't have that many final girls in my life, so uh, I, I'll just pick uh, Daniel Kaluuya and get out. 
Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> so uh, a modern one that comes to mind that I really liked is Jenna Ortega and X. You know, sorry to give away the ending of X, but she lives and she's the only one. Um, she's a great final girl. She's a great scream queen face. And that was kind of my big takeaway from that movie, aside from how excited I am for uh, Mia Goth forever. But like... <laughs> She's a really good, like, modern scream queen and final girl, a little double batch the way uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie. But, I mean, she'll, like, Jamie Lee will always be my favorite just because I love this movie so much. Yeah, that's super fair. So I mentioned my favorite scene, but what was your favorite scene of the movie? Uh, the walk home from school. Um, I loved how it plays with your emotions. It plays with tension, especially watching it for the first time. You never know when the murdering is about to pop off. You know, him hiding behind the bushes and then her friend going and he's not there anymore, but she's playing into it when one of the characters sees Michael Myers driving and she's like, hey, speed kills, which is like some of the most 70s suburban shit I've ever heard in my entire life. And he so stops. Uh, I was like, oh, God, what's going to happen now? That that was like kind of a masterclass in building tension and not having to do a lot. Like, it's so impressive how like minimalistic this movie is and how lived in it feels um, for as much i assume that the stakes and the wildness ratchets itself up uh in the sequels all right do you have any other questions for me about this movie a handful um what are your thoughts on the halloween sequels because there's like seven of them okay so halloween h2o which is 20 years later i like that one that one's good um which is one, two, three, four, five, six. The seventh movie in the franchise. Um, and then I actually like the 2018 movie just called Halloween. Um, I think that movie is really solid and Jamie Lee Curtis is in it and um, she becomes more of a, a more central figure. I don't think the Rob Zombie remake is very good. It's definitely not for me. Um, some people enjoy the real campiness of it, but H2O... And then the 2018 Halloween, I think, are like still pretty solid. Um, okay. My next question for you is, what's your favorite John Carpenter movie? Uh, my favorite John Carpenter is actually one of my favorite movies. So my favorite horror movie of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, I don't know if you could handle that one, but it is really, really good. I have it on VHS. I have it on DVD. It was a movie I saw way too young because my mom also loves it. Um, and it just is one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So the only other Carpenter I've seen is Escape from New York. But I am also interested in watching The Thing after watching Halloween. Um, a couple more theoretical questions about the movie itself. Is the sheriff in Halloween dumber <laughs> than the Jaws mayor? Okay, so this is a really good question. Um, I think the only wrinkle is that the sheriff... No, because I guess he doesn't believe Loomis either. Okay. I think this is a good question because the sheriff is quick to not listen to Loomis, but also not listen to his daughter about, like, things that are going on. But also, like, mental health and mental illness were, like, not taken seriously I feel like shark attacks were always taken seriously. <laughs> and the Jaws mayor did it for money. Hey, July 4th is a really important weekend for them. Yeah, and the sheriff did not. So I'm not sure. They're not, neither of them are great. I feel like the Jaws mayor had motivation, but the sheriff was like, eh. I just don't want to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, 
if you see someone has dug up their dead sister whom they murdered tombstone i might be like i don't know guys you might want to find a different neighborhood to trick-or-treat in um okay so the other question i have is would you have opened the door for Lori? yeah i feel like i would have right if she if a if a girl's of a 18 year old girl is like screaming bloody murder I, yes and like I, I just i i would have questions i don't know it depends i think it's maybe a a girl thing but i would be like y- yes <laughs> so i i think if i'm home alone i do it because it's just me but like if it if I had people in the house, I don't know if I would open the door. Interesting. Because, like, I don't want to bring that. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know Lori. Like, maybe maybe if I know the neighbors, but, like, maybe I'll be like, oh, uh, she's the babysitter. Yeah. I was going to say, Haddonfield's, like, supposedly, like, a pretty small suburb. So I'm under the impression that, like, those neighbors know who Lori is. That's fair. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I know the right thing to do is to open the door and help. Yeah, I feel like I would have, but who knows? Yeah, I would have at least like called 911 and be like, yo, there's a girl screaming outside my house. The sheriff would be like, eh. Yeah, it's whatever. It's Halloween. <laughs> whatever. That's the other thing, though. It's Halloween. Yeah. So, you know, like them kids might be like getting up to some pranks. That's true. I don't know. I don't trust it. Um, all right. Do you have any comments or questions uh, left? Um, I have one comment and then one question. So my comment is just that this movie really makes sure you knew that this is taking place in Haddonfield, Illinois. They say Haddonfield so many times. This is like, this is Haddonfield and you will know it. This movie was filmed famously in Pasadena. Yep. And guess what? It looks like it was filmed in Pasadena. <laughs> and it is often a comment made about this movie is like, for something that they really try to hit you over the head with, they really didn't try to hide it that much. <laughs> they also had to like run from like one room to the other to continue like the lights in a shot. Like the light guy would like be running I, around because they didn't have enough money to hire more lights. I love movies, man. Uh, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> any other any other things? Yeah, my last question is, do you have any interest in seeing other Halloween movies since seeing this one? So to bring up Kevin again, he was like, watch Halloween, then watch H2O. Yeah. Um, so good advice. I actually did want to watch it before this pod. I didn't have time because I'm also trying to watch Scorsese movies um, right now. But uh, I would watch H2O and I maybe would watch the 2018. Um, yeah, it's a good yeah. it's a good one. <laughs> um, so would you watch this one again? Yeah. It's great. It's a great movie to run back every 12 months. Yeah. And if like I'm in the room and people are like, hey, we're going to watch Halloween. Cool. Like, can't wait. Um, Hell yeah. It's a good time. So if people enjoyed Halloween uh, and just enjoyed, I don't know, horror movies uh, and want more movies like this, what should they check out? So I need to get better at not giving away all my answers while I'm discussing the movie. (laughs) Because this is like the third time I've basically said most of them. But Obviously psycho, yeah. but because in the psycho pod I told people to listen to I told people to watch Halloween, I'm gonna consider that not an option. Um, but Jaws, uh, because of the score, is a is a perfect example. I think the tension um, too before you see the monster. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, this unkillable force type situation. Um, I mentioned Scream. There are uh, a few obvious influences between Scream and Halloween. Obviously, Wes Craven like plays on his own movies and horror as a genre in general during Scream, which is the whole point of the film. So that's like a fun version. Um, And then Prom Night, which was the next movie that Jamie Lee Curtis does and is also like featuring her as a Scream queen. She doesn't end up going on to have like a big horror-specific career. Um, Aside from the Halloween movies, she varies her genres after this. Um, but Prom Night definitely is like somebody saw her in Halloween and was like, get in this next movie and scream a lot. Um, so <laughs> and Prom Night's like good enough. It's like fun. It's a fun horror movie. Those are fun suggestions. I love it. Thank you so much. So I feel like this one's pretty clear. But which movie do you think Louie would love more? Yeah, definitely. It happened one night. <laughs> yes, definitely. It happened one night. <laughs> I think you would appreciate, though, the innovation. Yeah, I mean, obvious, clear, big movie fan, cinema bro himself, Louis Dupont Delac. Oh my God, but... we should make a fake Louis Letterboxd. Oh, <laughs> okay. When I finally get back on Letterboxd, just so people remember that I was there first and then I was like, this is overwhelming and I escaped. I don't know how he's going to feel about our next movies, but why don't you tell people what we're swapping next? So, because the most anticipated movie of the year, because Dune 2 is not coming, the Scorsese's. Killers of the Flower Moon is finally coming out this month. So in honor, we are swapping Scorsese movies. So Zach is going to watch Casino, and I am going to watch Color of Money. Zach, what do you know about Casino? I know that it gets a lot of unfavorable comparisons to Goodfellas, but has Mm. kind of come Mm -hmm. around in the like years afterward. Um, and has been kind of reclaimed a little bit. And I think people are split on Sharon Stone in that movie. And I'm intrigued. And it's in Las Vegas. Shout out. What do you know about Color of Money? Not a lot. I believe it's a gambling movie. Not really. Okay. Then I know not much. I know it's by Martin Scorsese. It's about pool. Oh. It's about like billiards. Billiards. Yes. Is this might be totally wrong. Is Robert Redford in this movie? Close, but Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Yeah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> For context, it's Paul Newman uh, returning as a character, Fast Eddie, from the movie The Hustler. Should I watch The Hustler first? Will I understand? You don't necessarily need to, but it'll, it's just a good... You won't miss anything. Okay. It'll depend on how well I am at my homework, so we'll see. <laughs> All right. Aside from the Scorsese movies at hand... What else is on your list? Uh, more Scorsese movies. I'm trying, yeah, trying to get through a lot. I'm not trying to get through. Like he's our one of our, if not the definitive American filmmaker of the last fifty years. Um, so I've watched King of Comedy and The Aviator in the last couple of days um, as well. So you know, got to watch Shutter Island, Last of Tem- Temptation of Christ. I'm trying to watch as many as possible. I also want to watch this 2018 film called Us and Them. A romance movie that I got hip to from the Letterboxd podcast when their social media, like TikTok person, Flynn Slicker or whatever, was on it. Um, I looked the movie up uh, and it was like, if you like the before trilogy, you'll like this one. And that's all I needed to know. Perfect. And then lastly, I want to go see The Creator. I'm about to go see it in a couple hours in IMAX. Um, John David Washington, directed by Gareth Edwards, Lone Wolf and Cub, Humans vs. AI, 
original story. I expect it to both rip and suck. What is on your watch list? So, Killers of the Flower Moon, yes. of course. Similarly, lots of Scorsese movies. I'm also trying to uh, fill up my cup before I see Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, Foe is coming out on Prime, I believe, soon. That is the new Saoirse Ronan movie. Oh, fuck um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's like, I thought that was coming out in like December. Everything's coming out in the next like two months. Yeah. It's crazy. Shout out to the writers. Yeah. Oh my Got God. Hell deal. yeah. Hopefully by this Hopefully. time, the actors too. But you know, whenever, Absolutely. whenever that happens. Yeah. We are very pro union here and we are so happy the writers have a new contract that they are happy with. And then the last uh, thing on my list is sort of like a, a bunch of movies. It's 250 <laughs> films. Um, so Letterboxd had recently released a list of their top 250 horror films. And I went through it and I had only seen about 45 of them, which should make me upset, but actually made me really excited. No, that's impressive. Because, uh, thank you, first of all, um, because I feel like every year around October, of course, I want to watch horror movies. But I want to watch new ones, and then I'm like kind of stuck of like, I don't know if this movie's any good. Like, where are the good movies that I just haven't seen yet? I've seen like all the classic ones at this point. I've got all the monster creatures done, like all this kind of stuff. So now I have this like holy grail list that I can just make my way through um, and find out like, oh, I've seen that, but I didn't know that was actually good. Now I'm going to watch it because a bad horror movie is really a terrible waste of time. <laughs> now I have like a great list to like kind of make my way through. I so love that. I'm excited. I so thank you guys for listening. You can always find a new episode on the second Tuesday of the month. We're going to be hitting you with bonus episodes, um, especially as new amazing movies are coming out. We're ramping up. <laughs> the Oscars hurt like for six months, but we're like ramping up to Oscar season. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but you can always follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod. I try to put some good stuff on there. And on Twitter at BlindSpotters. Zach, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Zach Pockleb. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. Amanda, where can people find you? You can send me any compliments or any horror movie suggestions at Amanda Luberto across all social media platforms. Woo. Wow. I'm so excited we finally did this. Yeah, this is a good I'm one. amped. Yeah. Movies are great, Zach. We come to this place for magic. <laughs> all right. Bye. We did it. Bye. Just keep your eye on that thumb.